0: Galatians 4, looking this evening at verses 19 through 31. Paul is writing in this epistle to a church which was lost in false doctrine. He had presented to them the truth, free from manipulation or personal benefit. He went to Galatia to tell these men and women that truth, and had paid for that truth with much pain and suffering. He had been stoned while he was in Galatia. He had been um, persecuted in many ways. He loved them. And as they learned the blessings of Christ that had been given, they came to love Paul as well. Paul left Galatia having found a group of friends whom he now called brothers and sisters in Christ and who would carry on the task of winning lost souls to Christ in Galatia that he could not do for he was moving on. But where there are sheep, there will always be wolves. False teachers swept into their midst and for one reason or another, these false teachers who were in fact Judaizers convinced them that salvation was rooted not just in belief in the name of Jesus Christ alone, but in belief of the name of Jesus Christ alone plus some elements or perhaps all elements of the Mosaic Law. The particular element that we know of that Paul is vehemently preaching against in Galatians and he also speaks against it heavily in Romans is circumcision. That these Judaizers were saying, if you are not circumcised, then you have no part in Christ. Excuse me. These sheep were devoured quickly. They fell to this false doctrine. Those who came into their midst following the teachings of the apostles were soon marginalized. And they were cut off by these false teachers who uh, wanted to keep these, these believers for themselves. They wanted to keep these men and women lost in false doctrine. So, as Paul said last time, they cut off anyone who would be teaching or giving any other truth claim so that they can keep these people rooted in a false gospel. And now Paul writes to these believers in grief, calling them out of the darkness of this web of lies which had been spun around them and back to the light of the truth of the gospel. Last time we were together in verses 17 and 18, we uh, read about the nature of these false teachers. He said, They zealously affect you, but not well. Yea, they would exclude you. That's that idea of shutting them out or cutting them off that ye might affect them. They court you. They zealously seek your affection but not unto spiritual strength. Rather, spiritual destruction. Now Paul says in verse 18, I don't want you to lose your zeal nor do I want you just to be mine. But their zeal had to be coupled with truth. Not opposed to the truth and it is there that we pick up today, Paul's words become very personal. Look with me at verses 19 and 20. Paul says, My little children, of whom I travail in birth again until Christ be formed anew, I desire to be present with you now and to change my voice, for I stand in doubt of you. Paul calls them here his little children, a greeting with which Paul uh, never uses. This is the only time in all of his epistles where he calls anybody little children. Now, if it rings a bell, if it, if it ticks a check, check mark for you, that's because in 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, John used little children regularly. In fact, uh, it's used six times in the epistle of 1st John as he warns that young group of believers against the dangers of a different false doctrine. And that doctrine was that Jesus it did not come in flesh, was the doctrine that was being contended with in 1 John. And so 1 John in 1 John, John called them his little children quite regularly. And the idea of this this address, my little children, is an address speaking to those who are spiritually immature. That these readers were, were not to a place in their spiritual lives where they were self-sustaining, where uh, they they could... Feed themselves. They yet needed someone to come alongside them and to feed them doctrine. Now, as I say that, we know that as believers, we will always need Christian friends, Christian counselors, and Christian teachers. We will always need people to help us understand doctrine and to teach us these things. But the object of discipleship, the reason why you are here this evening, the object of discipleship in our lives is, is that we would come to a point where we can be spiritually self-sustaining, where you can feed yourself. That doesn't mean you don't need teachers. But what it does mean is that you have the capacity to live the Christian life, the spiritual discipline, the spiritual knowledge, and the wherewithal to live your Christian life without having someone looking over your shoulder guiding you along each step of the way. And there's a point where you need that, is there not? There's a point where you need somebody to come alongside of you, put their spiritual arm around your shoulder, and say, this is the direction you need to go in, son. This is what the Bible says. Those are little children. Now, as we consider this idea, the parents in this room might relate to this well in the form of parenting. Parents in this room do a great job of providing for their children, protecting them, correcting them. But parents, whether you like it or not, you need to remember that your object as a parent is not to keep your children forever, to protect them forever, to provide for them forever. Uh, moms, you kind of say, but 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 you know it's true, right? There comes a point where the kids have to go, where you your protecting influence, your providing influence, your raising influence is over, and it's time for them to become their own person. Your job is to provide for them while simultaneously teaching them how to provide for themselves. Your job is to protect them physically and spiritually while simultaneously teaching them how to protect themselves physically and spiritually. And if your children leave your care having been well protected but not able to protect themselves spiritually, not able to stand on their own two spiritual feet, well, then you've missed something very important as uh, per your role as a parent. Such is also the case spiritually in every regard. Perhaps you recall when we were studying through First Thessalonians. It was uh, uh, some time back now, but as we were studying through First Thessalonians, Paul was greatly concerned in his first letter with the church and their spiritual maturity because he had had to leave the church so early much earlier than he would have preferred due to persecution and the, the threat of his life. Because he had to leave the church so early, he was afraid that the Thessalonians would not be where they needed to be spiritually. And he wrote to them, in fact, pr- thanking the Lord that they were showing the fruit of spiritual maturity in their lives. As Paul reproduced churches throughout the known world, his goal was to win people to Christ and then form in them Autonomous churches which were able to be self-sustaining through the ordination of local pastors, local elders, local leaders, who would then be able to lead the church into all doctrine. Now in Galatia we find that that Paul had the time to teach them, and then as he left, he, he felt they were in good hands, but somehow They had been derailed by false teaching. And so though it had been quite some time since Paul had been with them and though he had desired them to form into mature believers, he states here that they are yet little children. And Paul tells them that he is thus having to travail in birth again until Christ is formed in them. Now, what is Paul not saying here? Paul is not saying that he's trying to make them become born again again. This is not the context. He's not speaking of travailing in birth unto a spiritual rebirth. That's already happened. They're already born again. And as we know from Scripture, that's a one-time eternal transaction. We just studied that this past uh, two weeks ago uh, uh, in 1 Peter 1 and Tuesday evening, that being born again is a one-time eternal transaction. But what Paul is saying here is that he's needing to form in them again the basic doctrines which he had already once formed. He is needing to shape them as infants again in the very mo- the most basic elements of the scriptures. And we talked about this too, two, two Tuesdays ago in 1 Peter. Uh, the, the foundations of the Christian life as we considered, uh, the, the passage Hebrews chapter 6 verses 1 through 8, which, um, As we consider that, the writer calls on us to move past the foundations of the faith, the basic principles of the doctrine of Christ, and to move on to perfection. What he's saying there is you don't need to be continually trying to build again the foundation of the gospel, move on to perfection, get past that, and move on to spiritual maturity. Well, here, that's what Paul would like, but he has to reform in them the doctrine of Christ. He has to reform in them the basics because they missed it. They lost it. Somewhere along the way, the church took a doctrinal U-turn and were again stuck contending with the principles of the doctrine of Christ, which was intended to be foundational and without debate in the church. And Paul says that his desire would be that he could be present with them so that he could change his voice, so that they would know just how concerned He is about them. Now, this is actually a parenting concept as well. Let's continue on the parenting illustrations. Every child here knows the parental concept of the changing of one's voice. Every parent knows the tone they fall into when they're truly disappointed or truly upset. And even the message which Paul wants to change his voice to say is very parental. Paul tells them that he would change his voice so he can tell them that he stands in doubt of them. The idea behind this phrase in the Greek is literally to be at a loss. I am at a loss concerning you. If I might personally translate this into parental terms, uh, this would be Paul looking at the little children of the faith, changing his voice in the way that parents somehow can do, right? To, To make your voice sound serious. And saying... I just don't know what to do with you. Effectively, that's what he's saying. I'm at a loss, church in Galatia. I'm at a loss, believers. I gave you all of this stuff. I told you the doctrine of Christ. I made it clear to you and you have abandoned it. And if I were with you, I would change my voice. I would would turn the tone to that parental authoritative tone that says, hey, look here. I don't know what to do with you. I'm at a loss. Now, it might be a bit comical for us to think about Paul doing that as, as all of us have experienced that to one degree or another with our parents. But, the, as, but as, as we consider it, it's really a, a very serious thing, isn't it? The tone change becomes the catalyst for our understanding of just how serious Paul is being here. And in this context, the context of Paul, this is exactly it. Paul needed them to know just how serious their direction was that they were going. This isn't just Paul being paranoid. This isn't just some difference of opinion. Paul uh, is, is not just very serious here. He is sincerely concerned. And he says, if I were sitting next to you, I would be doing everything in my power. I would be changing my facial expressions. I would be changing the tone of my voice. I would be doing everything in my power to let you know just how serious this issue is. But as he's simply writing to them, he says, all I can do is describe it. If I were here, I'd change my voice. And so for the second time now, Paul will argue his case before them about salvation using the example of the life of Abraham. Now, last time we looked at Paul using an example of Abraham... Um, his argument sought to convince them through Abraham's life explicitly that salvation is by faith alone without the works of the law, uh, hearkening to the reality of Genesis 15 that Abraham believed God and it was counted unto him for righteousness apart from the law. This time, his argument will seek to convince his readers that even apart from the condition of their salvation, they as believers are not in any way obliged to follow the law of Moses. So it's not just a salvation thing, it's a spiritual living thing. And Paul is going to do this by revealing an allegorical relationship between two mothers, the two mothers of Abraham's two boys, Ishmael and Isaac, and the two covenants between God and his elect, namely the covenant of Moses and the covenant of grace. The Mosaic Law and the New Covenant. So he argues, so the argument begins in verse 21 and 22 where he says this, Tell me, ye that desire to be under the law, do ye not hear the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, the one by a bondmaid and the other by a free woman. So Paul tells us that once again, since the law is really what matters to these Galatian believers, he says if the law is really what matters, then listen to the law. Then go back to the law. The the book of Genesis is one of the five books of the Torah, which was one of the five books of the Jewish, the Hebrew law. And so it's one of the books of the law. He says, okay, if, if, if the law is what you want, let's take a look at the law And so he goes back to the book of Genesis once again to establish the inferiority of the law to grace. And he reminds us that Abraham had two sons. The one by a bondmaid and the other by a free woman. The account in question here is found specifically in Genesis chapter 21, but I'd like to give you a little bit of backstory before we consider Genesis 21 this evening. In Genesis 15, God promises to Abraham that he will be a great nation and Abraham, though he believes this promise, is troubled by this promise. And he's troubled by this promise because his wife Sarah is barren. She cannot have children. And so he says to the Lord, well, uh, my my wife is barren she can't have children so is Eleazar of Damascus my chief servant is he going to be the one through whom these promises will come uh, but on that day God says no no Abraham that's not my plan and he assures Abraham that indeed he would have a child from his own loins of his own blood and Abraham believes him Genesis 15 says and this faith that he would have a child was counted unto him. righteousness. This is very important, so don't miss it. Abraham's righteousness was based upon his faith in God that he would be given a seed out of his own flesh, out of his own blood. We move on to Genesis 16, where we find that Sarah is unable to have children, of course, and so convinces Abraham to have a child with her handmaid, a woman named Hagar in order that, I guess we could say it this way, they could help God fulfill God's promise. So Sarah says, take Hagar, have a child through her, that way you can have the child that is of your seed, of your flesh, and we can make this happen. Well, as many of us know, and the rest of us will likely find out one day, God doesn't need our help in fulfilling His promises. And oftentimes when we try to help God in fulfilling His promises, we just end up kind of making a mess of things. So Abraham has a child and his name is Ishmael. And this causes massive family problems. Here is Hagar. Hagar is underneath Sarah. Hagar is a bondwoman. Sarah is a free woman. And yet Hagar, this bond woman, has now had a child with the free woman's husband. And so though Hagar is has to maintain this role of submission to Sarah. Hagar, in her heart, feels in every way superior to Sarah because Hagar has had a child and Sarah has not and having children is everything in that culture. And not only has she had a child, but she has had a child with her mistress's husband and so it's just a mess. It it was a terrible idea. It was a terrible circumstance. Sarah's unhappy Uh, Sarah makes Hagar very unhappy. Uh, Hagar ends up running away. God says, no return. Uh, You fulfill your role. Hagar does so. In Genesis 17, we find God again reiterate to Abraham his promise of a seed and the blessings that would be given to that seed. And Abraham pleads with God. Abraham says, can't Ishmael be the seed? I've got this son. This is great. Can't you make Ishmael the seed? And God said, absolutely not. I absolutely will not make Ishmael the seed. The seed. See, Ishmael was a child born out of Abraham's effort. Ishmael was a child born out of Abraham's self-righteousness. Ishmael was the very embodiment of Abraham's self-effort to make God's promises come to pass. God said, I'm not interested in your self-effort. I'm not interested in your self-righteousness. I'm going to provide for you a seed and I'm going to do it in the way only I can. Another seed is thus promised. One miraculously given to Abraham through Sarah, his wife who cannot bear children. The child is born in chapter 21. And that child is named Isaac. He is the first child of Abraham's household that we have on record that is circumcised on the eighth day according to the, promise, uh, the, the expectation of God. And now, let's read together a little bit in Genesis 21. You can feel free to turn there if you'd like or it'll be on the screen behind me. Genesis chapter 21 and beginning in verse 9 we will read through verse 13. And Sarah saw the son of Hagar the Egyptian which she had borne unto Abraham mocking. Wherefore she said unto Abraham cast out this bondwoman and her son for the son of this bondwoman shall not be heir with my son even with Isaac. And the thing was very grievous. In Abraham's sight, because of his son, and God said unto Abraham, Let it not be grievous in thy sight, because of the lad, and because of thy bondwoman. In all that Sarah hath said unto thee, hearken unto her voice, for in Isaac shall thy seed be called. And also of the son of the bondwoman will I make a nation, because he is thy seed." So Sarah sees Ishmael one day mocking her son Isaac and she gets extremely angry. She will not stand for it. She says, get this kid and his mother out of here. Well, obviously Abraham doesn't want to do this. Abraham doesn't want to cast her out. But God speaks to Abraham and tells him to do it, to send her away. Because Isaac is the the son through which these blessings will come. Now, from a carnal perspective, this seems harsh and wrong that God is telling Abraham to send away this woman and this child uh, who, I mean, it's, it's her, his fault, right? That Hagar had this child. Uh, it wasn't her choice. It wasn't her idea. It was his idea. Well, Sarah's idea. But it was, he's the one that did it. But, you know, it isn't God's fault either. It isn't God's fault that Abraham sought to bring about God's promises his own way. It isn't God's fault that Abraham ushered grief and misery into his family through his misguided decisions. And now Abraham, Hagar, Ishmael, Sarah, and Isaac, they all are suffering the consequences of Abraham's poor choices. You know, we've said many times, we'll say it again a little bit later uh, in in the, the sermon this evening, you can choose your sin, but you cannot choose that sin's Consequences. You can choose what you will do, but you can't choose who you're going to hurt by it and who will be affected by the consequences of your choices. Hagar, Ishmael, they were casualties of Abraham's poor choices. That happens in real life, doesn't it? In real life, we don't live in a box separated from everyone else. The choices we make touch people the sins that we commit hurt other people. This is the reality. Abraham's sin is affecting Hagar and Ishmael in a deeply negative way. So Abraham sends Hagar and Ishmael away with the assurances of God. God says, don't worry about them. I'll take care of them. He will still become a great nation, but he's not the child of promise. He doesn't need to be here with you. And it is this event that comes the backdrop for the passage in question. So turn back with me uh, to Galatians chapter 4 and we will pick up again in verse 23 where the scriptures tell us this. But he who was of the bondwoman was born after the flesh, but he of the free woman was by promise. So this is the, the account that we just read. There was a child named Ishmael born of Abraham's will and born of Abraham's power to a slave woman. And then there was a child named Isaac who was born of God's will, born of God's power to a free woman. And the word of God directly tells us as it continues in verses 24 through 26, which things are an allegory for these are the two covenants, the one from the Mount Sinai which gendereth to bondage which is Agar for this Agar is Mount Sinai in Arabia and answereth to Jerusalem, which now is, and is in bondage with her children. But Jerusalem, which is above, is free, which is the mother of us all. Now, an allegory is an account that paints a figurative picture of something else, so that the characters in the allegory are meant to resemble the characters in the other account. In this case, Paul says that these two children, Isaac and Ishmael, are allegorically related to the two covenants which God has made throughout history with His elect. The first covenant was the covenant which came from Sinai, which is the mount upon which Moses received the Ten Commandments and the law of God when he was up there for those 40 days. Paul says this covenant corresponds allegorically to Ishmael. And like as the Mosaic covenant comes from Sinai, So Ishmael comes from Hagar. So Hagar is like Sinai. Ishmael is like the law of Moses. The second covenant is the covenant which comes from what Paul says is Jerusalem which is above. Jerusalem which is above. An interesting way to put it, but the Jerusalem that we know which is above is the Jerusalem which John sees coming down from above in Revelation chapter 21, verses 2, the Jerusalem which is there called New Jerusalem. And in that verse we read this, And I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride... Adorned for her husband, now let me quickly remark about the two Jerusalems which are being spoken of here in verse twenty six Paul says that the Jerusalem, which is now, is in bondage with her children, to the law of Mount Sinai. In this way, Paul uses Jerusalem, the city, as it existed in the days of the Galatians to as a representation for the entire nation of Israel the entire elect people, national Israel. That's the Jerusalem which now is. And then he says that the Jerusalem which is uh, above is free and the mother of us all, speaking of believers. In this way, Paul uses the new Jerusalem, which will descend from God out of heaven. That new Jerusalem to represent the entire body of redeemed believers in every generation which will find their eternal home in that celestial city. So we have the Jerusalem which is now, and Paul says that's in bondage to the law, right? Because Israel, as a nation, was in bondage to the law at that point. They were not freed by grace. They had not accepted Christ. They had rejected Christ. He says then there's the Jerusalem which is above, which by the way, the Jerusalem which is above from Revelation 21, it's the only time that anything in Scripture is actually called a bride being adorned in context of Christ. It's, I, I believe that the church is a part of that bride, but New Jerusalem is officially that bride adorned for her husband, which will, of course, encompass not just the church age, but every age of believers. And let me just state one more thing before we move on here. It cannot be said textually or interpretively that Paul is stating dogmatically that the the account of Abraham is only an allegorical account. And what I mean by that is this, the account of Abraham works allegorically according to God's plan to describe these two covenants, but that doesn't mean that the account of Abraham is not, not real history. And that's important for us to understand here. Paul is not saying, oh, don't worry, the book of Genesis is just allegorical and metaphorical and it's not literal. That's not what Paul is saying here. We can't gather that textually. We can't gather that interpretively. It's simply put, he's saying that, these, that this relationship is typologically or allegorically relatable to these covenants. And to drive his point home, Paul quotes Isaiah 54 verse 1 in verse 27 of Galatians 4. He says this, For it is written, Rejoice thou barren that bearest not. Break forth and cry thou that travailest not. For the desolate hath many more children than she which hath an husband. Uh, As Paul quotes this verse from Isaiah 54, in Isaiah 54, the prophet is writing to Israel And he's writing to them about their exile in Babylon, stating that the spiritual fruit of the nation, that there will be more people that will come to be followers of Christ in the exile than there would have been in the land in which God had given them as their people. And so Isaiah was saying, rejoice because this exile is going to bring you closer to God. Here Paul extends that principle to the church as well. That the spiritual fruit of the Jew and the Gentile alike, apart from the law, is far more significant than the spiritual fruit that was found while they were under the law. And that's the the extension there. That in the same way that the exile would bear more spiritual fruit for Israel than living in the land, the, the covenant of grace would bear more spiritual fruit For Israel and the Gentiles than the law of Moses. And and thus, as Paul continues, he says in verse 28, Now we, brethren, as Isaac was, are the children of promise. See, here's the thing. Paul has established all throughout the book that we are saved apart from works, saved by grace alone through faith alone. Now, consider the allegory because it's really fantastic. Abraham fully believed God's promise, right? Fully believed God's promise in Genesis 15 that God would give him a seed and that that seed would come through his flesh. He fully believed that. We know that because the Bible says Abraham believed God and it was counted unto him for righteousness. But in misguided confusion, he seeks to bring about the promise of God which he fully believes in. He seeks to bring about that promise through his own futile efforts, resulting in Ishmael, but not in the realization of God's promise. It brought about a son, but it didn't bring about the realization of God's promise. But God wholly rejects this. He wholly rejects Abraham's personal effort, rather insisting that through Abraham uh, there would come another seed. Abraham wants God to bless him through his own efforts, But it doesn't change the fact that God is going to bless Abraham through his promise. Literally, it's this. Abraham, you believe that I'll give you a seed, right? Abraham says, well, yes, God, I do. And you tried to bring it about your own way. Well, yes, God, I did. Well, I reject it. But I'm still going to give you a seed. Well, Abraham says, can't you just take Ishmael? Absolutely not. That's your effort. You can try to present Ishmael before me as many times as you want. But I'm going to give you a seed out of Sarah, even in spite of you. Do you see the parallel? These Galatian believers were born again. They had accepted Jesus Christ by grace through faith. They had accepted him with all their heart. They had heard the promise of God through Jesus Christ of eternal life, and they believed it with all of their hearts. So they were saved according to the promise. They believed God and it was accounted unto them for righteousness. But then just as Abraham, having believed God, began to try to work out that promise in his own way, the Galatian believers began to listen to the wrong person just as Abraham did when he listened to his wife. And he sought to bring about God's promise of eternal life through his own efforts. So did the Galatians. They, they heard the promise. They accepted the promise. And then by listening to the wrong counsel, they sought to try to bring about that promise in the wrong way. And just as God completely rejected Ishmael as Abraham's solution to God's promise, so too God completely rejected the law as a Christian's solution to eternal life, and to a right relationship with God. Can you see the parallels? Aren't they stunning? It's just fantastic when you look at it. Now, when Abraham sought to bring about God's promise his own way, this did not invalidate God's promise, did it? God didn't say, Oh, Ishmael was proof. You lost it. You lost my promise. Absolutely not. Abraham believed God, and he was going to get the promised seed even in spite of himself. But because Abraham chose to try it his own way, to do his own thing, to follow his own path, he suffered dramatically negative consequences. Likewise, these Galatian believers, Paul says, you didn't lose your salvation. The promise is still there. You accepted the promise. You received the promise. It's still your promise. And regardless of all of your self-justifying efforts, getting circumcised and submitting yourself to the law, God's not going to accept any of it. God is only going to accept Jesus Christ whom you've already trusted in. But because the church is trying to do it their way, trying to get to God their way, trying to work self-righteousness in order to please God, they're suffering. And they would suffer dramatically negative consequences as well. And this is the warning. This is the lesson. We are the children of promise. We are not children of the letter. We are gods because we have believed. So now it is our privilege to wait upon God to bring about His promises. We, like Abraham, can go out into the world as believers and seek to establish our own righteousness through some law or through no law. But God will never accept our efforts as the basis for His promise. His promise will will forever be fulfilled on the basis of the blood of His Son, Jesus Christ, because we are not children of the bondwoman. We are children of the free. And as we seek to submit ourselves to the law, just as Abraham sought to earn God's promise through Ishmael, what we will actually create is conflict, confusion, and pain which will not only touch our lives and the lives of those closest to us, but could last for generations. Today, the descendants of Ishmael are the Arab nations, which have surrounded Israel and daily are seeking to destroy her. To this day, Abraham's attempt to bring about God's will his way is tormenting the descendants of the child of promise. And as, we all, as we've said we can choose our sin but we cannot choose our consequences when we choose a path of self-righteousness having accepted Jesus Christ by grace through faith but then seeking to work out our salvation through self-righteous means that we don't know who we're touching we don't know who is receiving that false doctrine we don't know what direction it will take them in we can't know but there will be consequences And as children of promise who stand before God in the confidence of God's righteousness, not our own, we find that those under the law indeed despise those under grace. Look at verse 29. But as then he that was born after the flesh persecuted him that was born after the spirit, even so it is now. In the days of Paul, the greatest persecutors of the church, it was not Rome at this point. The greatest persecutors of the church were the Jews. And Rome turned a blind eye to it. They allowed it to happen. But the Jews were the persecutors of the church, of the, the early church until the days of, of Nero when, when really Rome became a, a deep persecutor of the church. Until that point, the Jews were the major persecutors. They rejected the church for they had rejected Christ. They hated the church because they hated Jesus Christ. Paul was stoned, not at the hands of the Romans, Uh, he was stoned at the hands of the Jews. The Thessalonian church suffered tremendous loss and persecution and martyrdom, not at the hands of philosophers and idolaters, but at the hand of the Jews. And so Paul tells them in verses 30 and 31, nevertheless, what saith the scriptures? Cast out the bondwoman and her son, For the son of the bondwoman shall not be heir with the son of the free woman. So then, brethren, we are not the children of the bondwoman, but of the free. Paul shares God's advice to Abraham. God told Abraham, cast the bondwoman out, the the child out. The child is an heir of the bondwoman. The child is not of the promise. He is of the flesh. Paul calls upon the church to recognize that the Judaizers in their midst were not pursuing God's truth, they were pursuing their own truth. And just as it was God's will that Ishmael and Hagar would be removed from the presence of Isaac and Sarah, so too legalism has no place in the church of Jesus Christ. Those who would seek to bind us to our own personal righteousness as the means by which we incur favor with God are seeking to bind us to a standard which no man as of yet has been able to bear with the exception of one. He who bore our sins in his own body on the tree that we being dead to sin might live unto righteousness by whose stripes we are healed. And this is why Jesus died to bear for us the burden that we cannot bear ourselves. And like Abraham, we can accept the promise and then seek the promise in our own way. We can accept salvation by grace through faith and then try to work out our own capacity to please God. But in doing so, we will find none of the joy and the freedom that Christ offers. On the other hand, if we truly see ourselves for what we are, children of the free woman, and we rest in this freedom, we cast out any concept of personal bondage to a code of conduct and serve God within the context of that freedom, we will be free indeed. And so we we read throughout the Scriptures. In Christ, we are truly free. Not free to sin. Free to live apart from sin. As we well know by now, there is no such thing as freedom apart from responsibility, is there? Look at every context, any context within which you find freedom. Freedom apart from responsibility is nothing short of anarchy. Where there is freedom, there must be responsibility or there will only be anarchy and destruction. It's true politically, it's true spiritually. In like manner, the freedom of Christ apart from obedience to the Word of God leads only to destruction, only to anarchy. But the solution to the danger of freedom apart from obedience is not bondage. Bondage is not the solution. We don't say, okay, I'm afraid that if I get freedom, then I won't be responsible, so I'm just going to bind myself. That's not the right solution the solution to the danger of the believer who lives outside of obedience because of his freedom in Christ is not to seek to bind the church under the expectations of moralism. The solution is for us to truly understand our freedom. If we would but understand what it means to be free, we would be more than willing to seek that freedom through obedience. Adam and Eve walked in the Garden of Eden with the Lord in the cool of the day. They were free. They fellowshiped with God Himself. And God allowed them the freedom to eat of any tree in the garden. He says, But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not freely eat, for in the day that ye eat thereof ye shall surely die. There was one exception. Their freedom came with the responsibility of avoiding that which God had identified unto them as destructive. Now, this didn't limit their freedom. They were free. They had every opportunity to eat of that tree or any other tree. But to eat of that tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, would be to work against their own freedom. Would be to place themselves in the bondage of sin. Adam and Eve failed their test, believing that they could somehow improve on God's plan for them. And so too can we. We are not under the law. And we must guard this freedom with vehemence. We must cast out the notions of the bondwoman and her son and live in the promise of eternal life through the righteousness of Jesus Christ alone. But likewise, we must not allow our concept of our freedom in Christ to be sought apart from the boundaries within which God has given us to live. I don't know about you, but parents, those of you who have raised children to some point, have you noticed how positively children respond to knowing their boundaries? When a child knows the boundaries within which they operate, they have a peace because they know the freedom that they have. If, par- if, if their boundaries are just guesswork, well, if my parents are grumpy today, then they're, they're, they're going to say I can't do that. But if they're in a good mood today, they're going to say I can do that. If my parents aren't really paying attention today, then they're going to let me go there. But if they're, if they're really paying attention, they're not if the boundaries are completely ambiguous, then a child never knows when mom and dad are going to be angry and when they're going to be content. But when a child has boundaries and those boundaries are set and they know them, then they can operate within those boundaries in complete freedom without fear or guilt. And when they step outside of those boundaries, they know they have. And the the fear and the guilt are there. And there's peace in that. It's the same way with God. Our freedom does not mean we can go and sin and do whatever we want. Our freedom enables us to take the boundaries of God as given in His Word and to live within them and to have the freedom and the capacity through the Holy Spirit to abound within the freedom that God has given us in Christ. This isn't a bad thing. This is a blessed, blessed gift of God. And if we can find this place, the place where we live fully invested in the freedoms which we have in Christ, to live free from the direction and priorities of this world, to live alive unto the direction and the priorities of Christ in the world to come, to live free from the Jerusalem which now is, and to live in the light of the Jerusalem which is from above, then we will find a fullness of blessing and joy that are promised as we read in John chapter 15, verses 8 through 12. Jesus says, If ye keep my commandments, ye ye shall abide in my love, even as I have kept my Father's commandments, and abide in his love. These things have I spoken unto you, that my joy might remain in you, and that your joy might be full. This is my commandment, he says, that you love one another as I have loved you. As Christians, we don't need the bondage of the law in order to protect us from sin. We don't need the bondage of the law in order to incur favor with God. We have that favor already. It was purchased for you on the day that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins. You are already in favor with God if you have accepted that gift by putting your full faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone. You are in favor with God. You have been given your boundaries and you've been given the capacity to live within them. So do it. As Christians... We don't need the bondage of the law to keep us living a life worthy of our redemption. We will want to live the life worthy of our redemption as we learn of the blessedness of the freedom that we have in Him. And so, with the same tireless devotion that we guard our obedience to Christ, we likewise guard our freedom in Christ. We cast out the bondwoman and her son as we will consider next week uh, in our time in Galatians 5, we'll cast out the bondwoman and her son, we will stand fast in our liberty. For we are not children of the bondwoman, we're children of the free. Let's pray together.